We've hit time, so we'll go ahead and get started here. We're uh, going to pick back up at 1 Corinthians 10. We had gotten just a little ways into this. And uh, we'll, we'll jump back into the larger context here in a minute. I'll give you a little of that. Let's open up with prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, as we contemplate the joy and bounty you have given us in your Son, our Savior Jesus Christ, uh, the communion of the saints even now, and that communion that leads to its fullness in heaven and ultimately in the new heavens and the new earth that are to come. We pray your blessing upon our study. May we be enlightened that we may not partake of those things of darkness, of the table or cup of demons, but solely and exclusively that table and cup of your beloved Son, our Lord. In his name we pray. Amen. So I'm going to make an assertion to you that we are still in the section that began in chapter 8 concerning food offered to idols. And though Paul has gone this way and that way, so to speak, and led us on various theological field trips, shorter than the ones I tend to lead us on, we're nonetheless on the same theme of when is it right to eat food offered to idols? When is it right to exercise your freedom in Christ? When is it right to not exercise that freedom, but rather to bind oneself in love toward neighbor? As he has stated in chapter 8, even though participating in food offered to idols... We know that an idol is nothing, or at least it has no power, that all food comes from God. This is free. We set aside that freedom for the sake of weaker brothers whose consciences may be defiled by this action. Paul isn't pleased with that being the only answer he gives. And so he's leading them along the way of recognition of the dangers of idolatry and the dangers of falling back into the idol worship all around them. And so that's really where we're going as we get into chapter 10. So we covered the first few verses in some detail last week, I think maybe the first five verses. We'll just hit those again to get a running start, but I want, to, I want you to see that chapter 10 is all part of this same unit. That's the best way to understand it. Chapter 10, verse 1, For I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, that's the pillar of cloud, by day, the pillar of fire by night. They were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food, that's the manna, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. So that's the miraculous water. And I think I commented very briefly last week on the beautiful typology of the rock being struck, and what flows forth is water. And of course, Christ is struck in his side, and what flows forth is water and blood. And so you've got some beautiful typology there. 
Paul's point thus far is that just as the Corinthians have baptism in Christ, just as the Corinthians have a spiritual food, namely the manna from heaven, the true manna, which is Christ's body, just as the Corinthians have a spiritual drink that flows from the rock that is from Christ's side, the blood of the New Testament, so also the Old Testament people had types and foreshadowings of these things. The punchline, the rhetorical punchline, is verse 5. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. So they had baptism, they had communion. Nevertheless, God was not pleased. Paul's warning is going to be obvious. You have baptism, you have communion, but if you likewise fall as they fell, God will not be pleased with you. So this sets a nice, healthy boundary on a theology which other, otherwise can tend to run in an antinomian direction, this idea of do as you will, but remember your baptism. Do as you will, but then continue to come to Holy Communion. In fact, in fact this very problem was taken up by uh, the Lutheran reformers. And there's a Latin phrase that's used to describe this, and it's a good phrase to know because it's exactly what is taking place in the Old Testament too. This Latin phrase is ex opera operato, by the working of the work itself. So the idea is, I can live however I want to live as long as I go to communion. God's going to give me forgiveness and be happy with me. Um, By the working of the work itself, apart from a genuine repentance, a genuine faith. The parallel to this, and this will tie in nicely with what we discussed on in the Sunday morning study for those of you who are there, but the parallel of this is that ex opera operato was going on in the sacrificial life of the Old Testament church. We can live however we want, we just got to do the right sacrifices. And of course, the prophets are everywhere rejecting that and saying, God doesn't want those sacrifices. God wants you to do the right thing. Okay. So this concept of ex opera operata by the working of the work itself is an abuse in the Old Testament of the sacrificial system and an abuse in the New Testament of the sacramental system of those gifts that God gives in baptism and the Lord's Supper. So here's Paul's warning against that to the Corinthians. So these Old Testament things took place as examples, as types for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Now, there are five, or at least one can see here, five different Old Testament references that Paul makes. And I'll I'll give them in brief. I guess if we want to go back and look at them, we can. I didn't do any preparation in that direction, but I'm happy to go back with you if that's of interest. The first here, the desiring evil as they did, seems to be a reference to their desire, their lust for the meat pots. Remember the flesh pots of Egypt, the fresh vegetables. So the, no sooner are they out of slavery and they're griping and saying, hey, it was better when we were slaves because at least we you know, had, a, had good food to eat or something. We could get a Chick-fil-A. <laughs> so they grumbled against God desiring evil. And so that seems to be the first reference. 
they took place uh, as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Conveniently, the second then is in verse 7. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. That is um, cited from Exodus 32.6, and that's the golden calf incident. I don't think I gave you a citation for the first one, verse 6. They're grumbling and the flesh, the meat pots, that's Numbers 11. The first one, the grumbling, the flesh pots, is number, Numbers 11, desiring evil. And then moving on to verse 7, the golden calf. Do you remember what they called the golden calf? Yahweh. Yeah. So that's the syncretism. That's, that's how they, you know, you think, how did they immediately, Yahweh was leading them out, how did they immediately turn to Baal worship the second Moses goes up the hill? Well, they didn't. It's a kind of syncretism where they say, okay, well, we're going to, it's, it's this golden calf, which is usually associated with Baal, but we're going to call this Yahweh, and we're going to worship as this golden calf as if it were Yahweh. And of course, that coincides with sexual immorality, which frequently, you know, it's just hard for us to wrap our minds around this in our context because it all seems so detached. I would argue ultimately it isn't. It just seems to be detached. But the point is that in the ancient world and with various idolatries, almost always sexual immorality was connected. So you've got fertility and blessing and fruitfulness, and all of this is connected with the sexual act, usually with uh, male or female prostitutes, temple prostitutes, and that constituted the worship, that constituted the sacrament of the, of the idol worship. So these things are bound together in a way that might not be so obvious to us today, Of course, we make the mistake as modern people of saying sexual immorality is just completely disconnected from idolatry. And in fact, it isn't. Okay, so that's the first and the second, the flesh pots and the golden calf. So far, so good. Anything we want to touch on with those? Okay. On to verse 8 and the third. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. The reference for this is in Numbers 25, and this has to do with Israel, the men of Israel being led to uh, unite themselves sexually with Moabite women. And then in came the idolatry of Baal. They were Baal worshippers, and so intermarrying with the unfaithful Baal worshippers, they became Baal worshippers. So that's the instance there. Uh, Numbers 25. There is a, a superficial discrepancy Numbers numbers 25 um, rounds it to 24,000. 
and 23,000 here by Paul. So there does seem to be a kind of discrepancy here that's minor and can be solved in any number of ways. But as you go back and look at that, you you will note that. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's just infinite number of ways to... I mean, 23 is inclusive of 24, so it's not even wrong on its right in itself. So, yeah. Or 24 is inclusive of 23, really, I think would be the right way to say it. But anyway, however you say it. Okay, so that's the third reference. Verse 9, then, is the fourth. We must not put Christ. Interesting. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did. Wait, who's the them? Old Testament folks. Christ is the one against whom the Old Testament folks are rebelling. So Christ is the one. Some manuscripts do say Lord, but uh, Christ is, is proper. It's great. So we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. So, very eye-opening here that, and I think that this is a a kind of baseline we should take, that unless the Old Testament text is explicit in itself, or the context is explicit in itself, we should most frequently look for the referent to the Lord or God or Yahweh as being the Son, unless the context dictates otherwise. And Luther has some comments to that effect as well, on the basis of this verse and others. Uh, the centrality of Christ in the Old Testament is all the more obvious when we look at New Testament verses like this that indicate Christ is at the center of the Old Testament narrative. Okay, well, you remember the serpents and the remedy being the bronze serpent, who in John 3, Christ likens to himself. That as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And the referent here is, let's see, yes, this is the fourth. So the referent is Numbers 21. And the grumbling here was specifically against God and Moses, again, for not providing food. Not providing food, not providing drink are frequent grumblings. And so Christ is irritated and sends serpents in their midst. You want to act like serpents? You can live with serpents. And of course, looking up at the serpent on the pole is an act of, simultaneous act of repentance and faith, simultaneous act of judgment, condemnation, that's what's been brought, you know, and uh, salvation, which is uh, very much like the cross itself. The crucifixion of Jesus. Um, I, I'm convinced that why a lot of people don't like the cross of Jesus in the front of the church, why they don't like the corpus, is because it's it strikes them as law. That's the that's the first and baseline hatred for it, because you've got a bloody man on a cross. What on earth is that? How off-putting! If you if you like allow yourself to marinate thirty seconds longer on that thought, it's like oh, that's what. That's what had to happen. That's what my sin made happen. And that's an uncomfortable thing when you just want to like lay down your jacket on the seats and go get your latte before the service starts. So 
I think, and, and Luther's great on this. I mean, Luther says when you, when you, whether you're thinking about the, the crucifix proper or whether you're just meditating on the crucifixion of Jesus, um, one can see there both law and gospel. One can see there both condemnation of sin and the severity of God's wrath and justice. Um, one can also see what we most commonly see, which is Christ is there and not you, not me. And he's there in our place and bearing that for us. And it's for our salvation and not ours only, but that the, whole sin, that the sins of the whole world might be taken away. So law and gospel. All right. Anything you want to you want to comment on so far? Well, Here's uh, I, I see a couple. Hold on. Yeah. Okay. Why don't you go ahead, Chris? Well, and then... comment I have is these people bellyache from the beginning because they're complaining about the food and the water, but they had the food and the water to go with the idol worship and the play. So every time I'm turning around, they're saying we don't have this, but yet you look around, they have everything. Yeah, they do have what they need, and they have what the Lord provides. But uh, God does acknowledge, you, you'll remember this, I can't remember which text it was in, whether it was in the harvest readings for uh, Thanksgiving matins or whether it was in the Thanksgiving Day readings for Thanksgiving Day uh, matins. It was the night before, it was Vesper, sorry. But the reading was that God um, allowed you, so this is Moses speaking to the people in Deuteronomy, God allowed you to hunger that he might test you. So I think, I think, yes, they grumbled, and yes, we can um, look, maybe look down our noses at that a little bit. But it is also true that God did allow them to hunger, did allow them to thirst, did allow that for the sake of testing them. And testing them, testing their faithfulness to him under duress. Now, what would Paul say to that? Paul would say these things were written for our benefit, that God is simultaneously and likewise testing us. Peter makes a, a comment like that, do not be astonished by the fiery trial that you must endure. So the, even though the heaven is, as a gift is given freely, the road to it is a fiery trial, is a road of uh, trial and testing and a road of difficulty and challenge. That's why Christ is just unashamed to say, agonize, strive to enter through the narrow way. That's, that's the reality of the Christian life. The devil, the world, the sinful nature are going to do everything they can with the time they have to stop you from getting there. If you don't take it seriously, uh, you're, you're liable to become an easy mark. So yeah, I, you know, when I, of course, when I go back and I see like God does a miracle for them and then it's like 15 minutes later, they're grumbling that God doesn't care for them. I always think to myself, hey, I resemble that. <laughs> a painful mirror, painful mirror. And it just seems odd. It's, they have a lot of wildlife with them, cows, chicken, goats. All this is coming. So they're not, yeah, they, they're low on food and water, but they're not completely out. They act like, oh, we're starving to death and there's no food. That's the way it comes across, but that's not the way it is because you're reading, they're making everything for the tabernacle. So they're acting 
I mean, it's like, oh, I don't have anything, and you're looking in back at somebody, and you're seeing, you know, a, a moving van full of crap, and I'm thinking, that doesn't make sense. You're preaching the law so, so sternly to me, Chris. I, I'm about to fall into despair. It's like me when I open up the fridge, and I go, there's nothing in here to eat. My wife's like, well, what about the turkey? Had it. What about the tacos? Had them. What about the lunch meat? Gross. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We we tire of what we have. So yeah, <laughs> I repent. <laughs> My comeback, by the way, is she. You know, there's nothing in here to eat. She starts listing stuff off, and I go, no leftovers and no condiments. <laughs> That, that usually quiets it down, right? Because then there is nothing to eat. Okay. So that's the, uh, that's the fourth. The fifth and final is, the ten, is verse 10. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. This is a fun one to track down um, because the text is almost certainly uh, the people's rebellion against the leadership of Moses and Aaron, which would mean the rebellion of Korah and the earth swallowing them up. But the text itself, this would be number 16. The text itself mentions nothing of the destroyer. So what is this business about being destroyed by the destroyer? In an apocryphal text, uh, Wisdom, chapter 18, verse 25, it mentions this episode and from number 16 and mentions the destroyer. So the thought is that Paul is aware of this tradition and is taking the wisdom reading of it, uh, of number 16, seeing that the ground opens up, by, and that is the destruction of the destroyer. I think it's very plausible. Makes sense. There are other examples of this in the New Testament where extra-testamental books, extra-canonical books, I mean, are referenced or quoted by the authors. Um, he uh, Both... Both Peter and Jude uh, make direct quotations from non-canonical texts, as if they're factual. And these are interpretations of the Old Testament events. So here would be another example of that. I find it to be the most plausible, probably what's going on. Okay, so that's the fifth. And that would be rebellion against leadership, which is important, I think, and probably why it comes last If you remember back in chapter 9, uh, verse 2, if to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship and the Lord. And then he goes on to talk about the pastoral office and the freedoms that are, or authorities that are given to the pastoral office and those that he sets aside. That seems to be a major concern for Paul and then brought up in this example here that they not rebel against his apostolic authority in the same way the Old Testament people rebelled against the rule of the God-given rule of Moses and Aaron. So that would be how that ties in then directly to the Corinthian situation. Yes, sir. It kind of seems like a foreshadowing of... Um 
it seemed like Christ had this done to him because he was put to the test, a foreshadowing of maybe the like the judgment. Okay. The destruction of these people mm-hmm. rebelling, mm-hmm. and like usually you don't see Christ. I mean, I, I don't. You know, it just seems like they tested Christ and he had them destroyed. Mm-hmm. It seems mm-hmm. like it would be something that would happen in the judgment time. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. And definitely, I mean, definitely warning them that the same Christ is in their midst and may punish them temporally in a severe manner or even eternally. The, I mean, the ultimate type of them not entering the promised land is the threat of not entering the eternal promised land, the final promised land. Now, we don't need to be too dogmatic or too specific about that. It may well have been a temporal consequence for many of them along the way, and not necessarily an an eternal consequence, but it's a severe consequence uh, temporally, and it may portend, or at least typologically portend, toward uh, an inability to enter the true promised land of the new heavens and the new earth. Yeah, so some severe warnings here that, look, even though you are, you Corinthians are God's chosen people, and they came through the Red Sea, you have baptism, they had the manna and the water from the rock, you have the body and blood of Christ. Nonetheless, they were punished by God. They displeased God and were punished by him. Um, Be careful lest you displease God and be punished by him, lest you fall into similar idolatries. And then that's the the skill of all these different references, all the different ways they fell into idolatry. And so he's warning them against all of these. Pastor. Yes, sir. Can you uh, talk more about idolatry? Because it, it used to be that I thought, well, idolatry was, you know, these objects that were made. And then I've grown to think that, well, idolatry is what... You, what's more important to you uh, than God Himself? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's an ordering of things, and what what my mind thinks goodness comes from for me. And I think you made the connection to fornication and sexual behavior. There is a form of idolatry. Is that what you were saying earlier tonight? If you could just talk a little bit more about uh, this, because I don't. Is it all sin idolatry? Yeah, good. Yeah, I can offer a helpful distinction there. So a helpful distinction would be um, a a distinction. I don't really care what the what the the names are we use, what the terms are we use. Um, Maybe maybe I'll choose the language of crass and subtle, even though that's maybe not the perfect language. It'll communicate the point. Crass idolatry is actually going into a temple and engaging in the worship. That's crass idolatry. Crass idolatry is, is going in and communing at um, the table of demons or fornicating in that context. Okay, That's a crass idolatry, and it marks a syncretistic move, a genuine worship of another god, um, consciously and knowingly. And that also would then mark a, apostasy. And this is really the breach of the Old Testament covenant proper. So where God talks about violating the the covenant, you know, you think this can't just be any sin. 
It can't even be subtle sins of prioritizing this over God or that over God. Because why? He provides an entire sacrificial system by which these sins can be repented of and be forgiven. What God really has in mind as the deal breaker of the old covenant is, um, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me. As soon as you turn and have another God than him, you've broken the covenant irreparably. Now there has to, I mean, so when Israel does this over and over again, finally God divorces them and says, you know, if you've chosen these other gods to be your husbands, fine, have them. So that's, a, that's important, and it's a biblical distinction then, as you can see from the Old Testament. And it's a helpful one for us because, yes, the, the law will show us that any violation of the law is a rebellion against God. That's what it is. But that marks a kind, that means any sin is, a, is an idolatry. But that's a subtle kind. It's to be acknowledged, it's to be repented of, but it's categorically different than uh, going into a, a mosque and bowing down to Allah. So with that categorical difference in mind, then Paul is explicitly warning the Corinthians, and then by extension us, from getting kind of backed in via social pressure and what's normative in a culture into crass worship of another god or other gods, plural. So the... Even in the Old Testament apostasy, it was rarely, if ever, you're not allowed to worship Yahweh. It was almost always worship Yahweh like this in the golden calf. Or worship Yahweh along with Baal and Ashtoreth and whatever else. The same is true all the way, all the way up to the present. It's, you know, the pressure from Satan is almost never... Uh, forsake God altogether. It's keep God, but just add these other gods. It's keep God, but worship him in a way that's entirely alien to who he is. So it, those, are, those tend to be the forms. The, where Christians historically get persecuted and where, where the prophets of the Old Testament and the faithful of the Old Testament to a lesser degree, but them too get persecuted is when they demand the exclusivity of Yahweh, when they demand the exclusivity of Jesus. So you can think of even just something generically like the Roman persecutions of the Christians. It was never like, hey, forsake Christ. It was just offer your pinch of incense or salt to Caesar, along with, and you can keep your Christ. So the persecution comes in when you go, no, Christ only, Yahweh only, only in the way that's been prescribed that's when the persecution arises. Does that distinction help between crass and subtle? Yeah, I'm thinking more of, of uh, idolatry in the current time being, you know, uh, health, wealth, uh, uh, you know, uh, you mentioned sexual uh, lusting and so forth. I mean, these are forms of too. We, we bow down before a bank account, in a sense, right? Or is that, is that not? That would still be the subtle kind. So where, where in our, and I understand that there's going to be some gray here and some room for discussion, but where something is taking you, I mean, this is really, so I'm going to make a concrete example, and I'm not trying to pick on anyone intentionally, 
but it is where pastors really get concerned when a family decides we're going to do soccer instead of church. Because you take this subtle thing, which is, oh, well, we're going we're gonna to spend more time on, uh, you know, soccer practice or baseball practice or football practice than, or, or I mean, you know, dance or flute or chess or whatever it is, okay? We're going to spend more time on this in a given week than we are on, on worshiping God, reading his word, praying as a family, etc. Okay, already you're kind of going, well, this is in the realm of subtle, but it's getting uncomfortable. And then when it comes down to something concrete, like God says, where two or three are gathered, there I am. Here I am, come. And you go, you know, I don't think so. Well, what are you going to do? I'm going to go do this other thing. It's got its own liturgy and its own, you know, and that, it, it really starts to cross a boundary into that crass idolatry, at least in the pastor's mind. And that's why we get so concerned. And that's why we preach against that specific, because a sort of baseline is if the Lord himself is present offering communion and you choose to go commune with another team, with another coach, with another uh, goal in mind, at the very moment that that you've made a choice, I believe it has. I believe it has. I mean, especially in our day and age, where it's like, what? If faith alone, you've got four different times on any given week to, to come to the Lord's house, and you don't avail yourself of that. But you, um, you've got four different opportunities to come to the communion of the Lord, to the table of the Lord, and you don't avail yourself of that. But you sure as heck don't miss uh, the the game time or the big event. Uh, that starts to, I mean, it just really makes me uncomfortable. Really, And I would have no bones about saying to the father of that household, hey, you're leading your family into idolatry here. Um, what your words are going to teach your children, or I mean, your actions are going to teach your children more than your words. And you'd say God's number one, God's number one. But then when God says, here I am, and you go, okay, no, he's actually not number one. Let's all go do this other thing. Okay, I'm not, and I'm not, you know, I'm not trying to be too legalistic. I, in our culture, it's long been accepted that, you know, you can miss here or there for a vacation or whatever, and fine. I mean, I, that, that might be the subtle kind of, that might fall into the subtle camp, or you, you just, you're not able to make it, and I get it. I mean, if it's a sin, it's a, it's a, a relatively small sin compared to what I'm talking about, where something would just take over. That's, that's where you start to go, whoa. If this isn't a crass form, I don't know what is. Um, I think we can, another, another really uncomfortable place of gray between subtle and crass, and this will be pointed, um, and I know this is cultural, I know this is generational, I'm not trying to be mean or cruel or anything, but it is, it is nonetheless objectively the case, is when we as men and heads of our household allow our the daily schedule of our household to drift into all kinds of nonsense rather than hey we're going to have a set time in which i mean i don't really care how small it is we're gonna have a set time in which we invoke the name of god and we pray we're gonna invoke the name of god we're gonna have the creed we're gonna invoke the name of god we're gonna read a psalm again i it's not I'm not really interested in the content there. I'm interested in are we as men, and whether you're a single man and you're the leader of, of your own, um, whether you're a man with a wife and children, are you marking your day? It is the day of the Lord. 
It is the day of his mercy. It is the day that the Lord has made. Are we rejoicing and being glad in him? Are we marking each day with the Lord? If we're not, and we're allowing whatever other nonsense to transpire, it's, it's one of those gray areas, isn't it? Um, because you're going, does this, does this day, does this table belong to the Lord? Does this household, does my headship, does this family underneath me belong to the Lord this day or not? So that's another uncomfortable place in our culture where it starts to, the gray starts to give way and starts to look kind of damning. Um, so I, I present that to you more for your consideration than I do as some, you know, as you can tell, there's some shades of gray there to be sure. And I'm not trying to be too mean about it or somehow like imbalanced about it. Just trying to look for examples that we're liable to fall into in our modern world that really start to make you go, I wonder, I wonder. I don't know. Any other ideas? I'll open it up. See if anybody else has any ideas. If your if your job is inherently sinful, or you're asked by your employer to do inherently sinful things, maybe you're in finance and your job is to bilk old ladies out of their inheritance. I mean, maybe maybe your job is to denude them of their wealth. I uh, you know, it's always under some nice little euphemism like a. What do they call them? Like a second mortgage. Reverse mortgage. Reverse mortgage. That's what it is. Thank you. Not a second. A reverse mortgage. A reverse mortgage. It sounds so innocent. I mean, really, you're just poisoning. You're just thieving people. If your job is to is to sell an inferior product at a you know at a ridiculous price, if your job is to get people loopholed into something that's going to be financially devastating to them, if your job is to just be a, a vampire in one way, shape, or form. You're gonna, you need to realize that, that you're acting as a priest of mammon. And that is a place in which you have to identify as a Christian and say, I can't do this in good conscience. So that might be another area where it's like, there's shades of gray up into a point, and then you go, this is incompatible with my service of God. This is incompatible with my chief identity as a Christian. And then if the, and if you come to that realization, and you should, I mean, there's no sense in being an ostrich and burying your head in the sand. Like, you can deceive yourself, but not God. Uh, if you come to that conclusion, you should let go of the one and retain the Lord. Hey, well, I'm going to have to take a financial hit. Okay. <laughs> well, I might have to get a job at uh, Home Depot. Okay. Um. That's, that's better to be a, a doorman in the tent of the Lord, right? Than to sit at the table of demons and feast sumptuously. So better to be faithful and suffer the consequences of that uh, than to be unfaithful. So those are maybe some uncomfortable things for us to think about, but things we have to think about and things that Christians have wrestled with and... Um, you know, and the church has been more unified in times past too. So that's why I also probably feel like I'm kind of standing out on an island here saying these things because in previous, in previous times, the church was stronger and would just sort of outright and manifestly denounce these things. You can't be a gladiator and a Christian. Your job is to go slay people for entertainment. That's incompatible with Christianity. Um, you can't be a temple prostitute and be a Christian. Things are incompatible. Um, when when people in office uh, say they're Christians and 
then act as though they're not. Very frequently, they're called out by pastors, bishops, the church, and said, you're, you're excommunicated until you fix this. Chrysostom famously excommunicated uh, some of the rulers of his age, um, said, no, sorry, you're not acting like a Christian in that you're robbing from the poor and giving more to the rich. Your policies suck, and they're uh, not in keeping with... Um, same with usury. Same with usury. You used to be white and black with interest. If your job is to be a banker where you make your living off of interest, uh, that's incompatible with Christianity. So the church used to be much more monolithic in those denouncements and those identifications of vocations that are uh, impossible to keep while being a Christian. We've lost a lot of that. We just have. It's just ugly and messy and kind of sound like a weirdo if you're a pastor this day and age saying, you know, a hundred years ago, this wouldn't have been permitted. (laughs) So subtle idolatry is the kind of idolatry like, you know, and, and it's important. I'm not, by subtle, I don't mean it's, it's small. I just mean that it doesn't constitute apostasy in and of itself. Does that distinction make sense? Helpful in some ways, at least. Okay. Otherwise, you end up in this place, um, and this may be my final comment. Well, I break all the commandments. That means I'm an idolater. So uh, I repent of all of that, and I'm forgiven. And then someone comes along and says, well, why don't you just offer your pinch of salt to season? And you go, well, I'm already an idolater. I guess what's it hurt? I'll just be forgiven of that, too. That's what happens when those, category, when those categories aren't kept distinct and you start justifying, well, well, I already look at a woman with lust in my eyes, so I've already broken the six, so I may as well go all the way because what's the difference? And you get me fall into this logic of all sins are the same. And there's no sin that's worse than another. And if I'm already guilty under the law of each and every commandment in some subtle way, well, what's the difference between subtle and crass? There is no difference. So that distinction is of of the utmost importance for us to uphold because, yeah, as Christ teaches, whoever looks at a woman with lust in in his eye has already committed adultery. That's what I'm calling the subtle. That's the law attack. But that doesn't give us permission then to go out and do the not subtle, do the crass. Both our Lord and the rest of Scripture would be appalled by such a conclusion. Okay, so the, the summary then of these five examples is given at 11, verse 11 of chapter 10. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. And I think... The view of the New Testament is that we are in the end of the ages. We are in the last age because nothing further from God is going to come except the, fi- the, the end. So um, I don't think we have to read into Paul any, any sense of like, oh, well, he, uh, you know, he thought the Lord was going to return the first century and he didn't, so Paul was wrong. I don't think, I mean, I, I think that Paul knows that there's nothing more from the Lord save the conclusion so he says, on whom 
the end of the ages has come. And it's true for every generation since. It's true until the Lord does come that we're in the end of ages. It's like the author of Hebrews. Now in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. There's just nothing further to come. We are in the last days, whether that was 50 years or five years or whether it's 500 years or 5,000 years, it doesn't matter. We're in the end. So that's how I view the latter half of verse 11. The point not to be lost is that these things in the Old Testament are an example, a type, and they're written down for our instruction. I mean, they happened, and what happened was written down later. So it's not written for their instruction. (laughs) So whose instruction? For ours, St. Paul says. And notice how he's using the Old Testament as if it was completely meaningful in the present. That's That's another thing we've lost sight of is, oh, the Old Testament, that's just the old stuff. We can go dig around for historical interest, encyclopedic knowledge. It's not the way Paul understands the Old Testament. He understands the Old Testament as being applicable now. These things were written down for us as Christians. Okay, 12. Therefore, let anyone uh, who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. So a warning against being proud and arrogant, which looking at Corinthians, 1 Corinthians as a whole is probably as close as we've, we've come to just nailing down with pinpoint accuracy what's going on in Corinth is there's all this arrogance, all this puffed up, all this sense of, hey, we've got it and we stand. And so then would be Paul's warning, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. So this temptation toward idolatry is common toward man. And As Christians, you just feel it because you know who the one true God is. And so you feel it as temptation. You feel it as this oppression. So no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. And then beautiful gospel, God is faithful. So I don't mean to go too far with this, but I'll at least make the suggestion that when he uses the language of temptation overtaken you, if you have fallen into these things of which I'm warning you against, if you have fallen in one way, shape, or form like the people of old fell, don't despair No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. So I think that God is faithful is, you know, was God faithful to his people of old uh, despite their many failings? Yes, he was. And now what does it mean moving forward? And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way to escape that you may be able to 
endure it, to stand and not fall. So again, taken as a, taken as a whole, therefore let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. That is, your sufficiency to stand and remain standing is not of yourself, but of God who is faithful. And as you entrust yourself to him, including his gracious forgiveness, including his faithfulness in Christ Jesus that blots out your iniquities, then as you think toward the future, he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with temptation... He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Now, here we're not talking about a sinless life. That would be the confusion of the subtle and the crass. We're talking about temptations to crass idolatry, to apostasy. God will provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Sometimes this verse in particular is over-psychologized, like, oh, God won't give you anything you can't handle, which is like, no. <laughs> that's, like, that's like the most God thing. That, like, that's what he does, is he gives you what you can't handle. Okay? He's not going to provide you with, an, with, a, with a situation in which you have to apostatize, you have to go worship an idol, and you can't do, any, you can't do other. He'll always provide the means for escape. Okay, but this business about like God won't give you anything that you can handle psychologically, like that's just nonsense. So um, 2 Corinthians 1, let me read this to you. This is 2 Corinthians 1.8. Paul, again, writing to the same people. For we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. So did God give Paul something he couldn't handle? Yeah, absolutely. We were utterly beyond uh, burdened beyond our strength. That's more than I can handle. That we despaired of life itself. <laughs> okay, that's more than I can handle. So I, I, w- the biggest misreading of this verse in Christianity is that we we psychologize this verse and we make it, oh God, God, you know, won't give you anything that won't give you a meltdown. Well, yeah, he will. And he frequently does. And what is properly in view here is apostasy and falling into idolatry. You will always have a way to escape. You will always have a way to say no. Even if that escape, frankly, is death. You will have a way of escape in him. You will have a way of faithfulness in him because he is faithful to you. I think that that's really what Paul's after here, especially in the context, because look what comes next in 14. And remember, the paragraph breaks are not divinely inspired. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. So what does Paul have in mind here when he's talking about temptation? He's talking about falling into idolatry. Look, the pressure is there. It's always going to be there. But God is faithful and he will provide the way of escape that you can endure this temptation and not fall into idolatry, but rather, and therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Okay, I speak as to sensible people. That might be Paul just being polite. (laughs) 
Judge for yourselves what I say. All right, and then we're going to launch into this next leg of his argument. But now you're going you're going to see in short order how this ties back in to what was begun in chapter eight, verse one, because we're back at food offered to idols. So this has been Paul's concern the whole time. His chief intention is to give a thorough answer to this practical question. We'll see how far we get here. So verse 14, therefore, my beloved, I know that is tender words. He's being kind to them. He's being gentle to them. Flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? So a few things to point out. The cup is singular. Already that's going to be a reference to the cup of the Lord. And it's why up until like the 1950s, 1960s, universally churches had the cup, the chalice. And then only at that time, um, I think it was Methodists, there was the discovery of germs and then Methodists who didn't believe that it was the blood of Christ anyway. It's all just symbolic said, hey, let's invent these things called individual cups. And then the individual cups came into the church. So for like 1950 years-ish, the church used the cup. And the symbolism there should be obvious, that it's Christ's cup. So when you take communion, remember in the garden, so on the night in which he's betrayed, he takes his cup, the cup, and gives it to them. And then in the garden, he prays what? Let this cup pass from me. What cup is he talking about? The Old Testament tells us in multiple places it's the cup of God's wrath poured out upon the nations that every sinner must drink. So what Christ does on the night in which he's betrayed is he trades cups. He gives us his cup, the cup of the Father's blessing, the cup of koinonia, fellowship and communion with the Father, and he takes from us our cup, And that's the cup of separation from the Father. That's why he says that he doesn't want to take this cup and let this cup pass from me. It's not like he suddenly gets cold feet. It's not like he suddenly doesn't want to do it. It is mind-blowing to him as as the one faithful man, as the Son of God, that he would be separated from his Father. He does not want to be separated from his Father. That's what he wants to pass. That's what he wants, if it could be permitted. He's not afraid of the suffering. And proof text for that is in John, where he flat out says, um, shall I not drink this cup? Of course I'm going to drink this cup. This is why I came. I came to die. Remember when Peter gets between him and the cross? Lord, Lord, no, you'll never go and die. He says, get behind me, Satan. If that was all that was going on was cold feet, what would Jesus be saying to himself? Oh, you don't want to go to the cross anymore? Get behind me, Satan. I mean, it would be identical to Satan entering him. He would be utterly of two minds. It's not at all what's going on. I can't tell you how many, how many sermons and how many books I've read that just have no clue what this is. Um, but this idea that Jesus somehow got cold feet or this is just his human nature that doesn't want to suffer. I mean, all of this is just poppycock rubbish. It's, that's the technical term. <laughs> 
he views that cup as the cup of separation from his father, of being no longer in communion with his father, of taking sin, which then alienates him from his father. And he's appalled by that idea, as any faithful man would be. He wants that if there's any other way that he can provide salvation for mankind. He's not afraid of the suffering. John's gospel makes that clear. Um, if there's any other way than being separated from it, what, what is the worst thing on earth for Christ? I mean, what is the worst thing imaginable to not be in communion with his Father? If there's any other way, yeah, I'm open to it. Let's do it. And even there's this sense of like, like let it pass from me of like, um, I'm going to drink this cup, but let the cup pass. Let it be drank to the dregs and let it be removed that our fellowship can be restored. There's that sense too. Um, and that sense is picked up by the author of Hebrews who said that God, who says that Christ pled with tears, prayed and pled with tears and was heard. So the cup did pass from him. After he drank it, it passed. There was that separation from the Father. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But that forsakenness passed. And so that's the way the author of Hebrews reads those, reads the text and reads the narrative in the garden on um, that Christ's prayer was answered positively, affirmatively. It's not like the Lord said, nope, sorry, you're going to drink it. Um, that wasn't the, it's not exactly what happened. And the author of Hebrews leans us into that way of thinking. Okay, so back to the main point. There's an exchange of cups that take place. When you go to the communion rail, that's not the church's cup, that's not my cup, that's not your cup. And inadvertently, I mean, that's what the individual cups preach against. Of course, that's not the intention, but it's what they preach against, because that is really your cup. I mean, you know, I mean, just, I'm just speaking humanly here. (laughs) Nobody else is going to drink from that cup. It's just yours. It's here. when Christ takes the cup, his cup, and gives it to them, and they all partake of it, that's the whole point, is that it's his cup. And he's drinking our cup. So there's the, the swap of uh, cups that takes place there. Okay, so 16 then, the cup of blessing that we bless. Um, and this this is language the liturgical-minded folks get all into this because it's like the third cup of the Passover, the last cup of the meal. There's all this speculation about that. But anyway, it's clear enough that he's talking about the cup they partake of in Holy Communion. The cup of blessing that we bless um, doesn't necessarily mean the uh, words of institution there, although that can to some degree be inferred. It's not probably the primary referent cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a koinonia, which is where we get the word communion? Is it not a communion in the blood of Christ? So, obviously, he's saying that exactly what Christ is saying, where he takes the cup of wine and says, this is my blood, to partake of that cup is to partake in the blood of Christ. To receive that cup is to receive his blood to have koinonia with the blood of Christ. Okay, the bread that we break, remember Jesus took the bread and broke it, and that is not a symbolism of his body being broken. That's nonsense. His body wasn't broken. If if one bone of his was broken on the cross, as John tells us, as the Old Testament tells us, then he was not the Passover lamb. 
So I know really well-meaning pastors and maybe even one of our hymns or two of our hymns or something talk about his body being broken. That's poetic. If it's true in any literal sense, uh, then Christ is not the Passover lamb because not one of his, not one of his bones was broken, the scriptures say. Not one of the Passover lamb's bones can be broken. So why does he break the bread? Well, you'll notice that in the action of the divine supper, he takes the bread and he breaks it. Then he says, so he takes the bread, he gives thanks, he breaks it. Then he says, after it's broken, this is my body. Why does he break it? There's no symbolic import at all because it's a loaf and he needs to get it to multiple people. It's the whole reason. So, you know, this practice that some people have, like very piously snapping the wafer, wafer is just bad practice. It's bad practice. Um, there's no need to do that. There's no theological import to that. Any theological import that one can imagine is wrong. <laughs> And this idea that the bread has to be broken in some sense because Christ did it is just not true. It's the way that he, I mean, what what else are we supposed to do? Here's the loaf, everybody bite it. So no, he just takes it, breaks it, gives thanks, and then distributes it to them saying, this is my body. Okay, he used unleavened bread in the Passover, so we use unleavened bread. The bread that we break, is, is it not a participation? Is it not a koinonia in the body of Christ? So as Christ says, take, eat, this is my body, um, then that is uh, the same thing he's saying, that that bread that we, partic- that we eat that we, is a participation. We receive, we commune with the body of Christ. Okay, so very clearly for Paul, we are receiving and becoming one with the blood and body of Christ. Um, interesting here later because, oh shoot, I'm doing it again. I'm sorry, we're out of time. Uh, I'm trying to make one final point, and we can, if you're interested, we can talk about it after class, maybe a little next week, you can ask me about it. But transubstantiation, um, the Roman Catholic position. Um, based on Aristotelian philosophical categories. But the basic idea is that it's no longer bread and no longer wine. It is only body and blood of Christ. Now, we actually share the most important. They say we're receiving the body and blood of Christ by mouth, and we say amen, the same thing. But because of this weird Aristotelian idea and this weird theory of transubstantiation, they think there's no bread and no wine there. Well, look what Paul says. The cup of blessing that we bless, and more clearly, the bread that we break. So it is bread, bread that is his body. It is wine, wine that is his blood. And the way to wrap your mind around this in a real easy way, I was taught this in the formula of Concord, in the book of Concord. The real easy way to wrap your mind around this is uh, Christ is true God and true man. Two Christs, now one Christ, with these two natures. So it is one thing that you receive in communion, and that one thing is has two natures, bread, body. That one thing that you drink, wine, blood. So that's called the sacramental union of those two different things, but one thing that you receive. And it actually... The articulation of that follows um, directly with the Christology. So it's not a consubstantiation. It's not a transubstantiation. This would be analogous to Christological heresies. It's a sacramental union. It's the hypostatic union uh, just in 
communion form. Okay, that's it. I've talked too long. Let's close with the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.